The iShots Podcast, episode number 17. Well, hello everyone and welcome to this episode of The iShots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis and this is the podcast devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, we bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas that can help you take your LabVIEW development to the next level. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of VI Shots. Today, I am interviewing uh, Jeff Jensen from National Instruments. He's a senior lead user manager for Embedded Systems there. So, Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Jeff. Um, as a lead user manager, what what exactly does that mean? Well, there are only a few of them at National Instruments, and the term really comes from Harvard Business Review in the 1970s. But basically, my role is to connect with members of academia who are experts in their field, in my case, specifically the field of embedded systems, to help us better understand what are the challenges that scientists and engineers will be facing from the perspective of embedded systems so that we can better help design tools to help them solve those problems. Um, so is there currently a problem in the embedded systems uh, field uh, or that sort of you need to help out with? Well, there are a myriad of them. Uh, National Instruments makes a, a very broad range of embedded products and we're dealing with sophisticated issues like timing and synchronization. When you take a look at the White Rabbit project at CERN, they're dealing with timing precision across networks of 14 kilometers. That is in some cases uh, uh, sub-nanosecond on the order of picoseconds of timing precision. And that kind of timing and synchronization is very difficult to achieve, and, and it's something that's a very active research area for the embedded systems community. We see a lot of applications where customers need to quickly uh, verify and validate their designs, especially in the use cases for safety-critical systems, nuclear, avionic, automotive, and anything that we can do to assist with that process can significantly reduce the cost of bringing a product to market or certifying it. So we see a lot of our test and measurement tools there, and we're open to finding new ways that we can help increase the productivity of those who are dealing with difficult problems like certification. We see, as of course is always the case with embedded systems, uh, constraint-based approach where Everything needs to be lower cost. Everything needs to be lower power. Everything needs to be smaller form factor. And we're always looking to push further into those directions. And we're also seeing a, a renewed interest in several new areas of models of computation, which is often in the purview of embedded systems. So, for example, we're looking at new models of computation that enable domain experts, say a, a signal processor or a communications developer, to describe an algorithm in a language that's very natural to them and close to their domain expertise, yet enable them to deploy a very sophisticated application onto FPGAs or distributed embedded computers. So these are just some of the many areas that we see researchers in embedded systems trying to tackle and, and ones that we want to be on the leading edge and helping develop tools that can leverage those technologies as they become available. So, I mean, the researchers uh, previously, uh, before Lavi Embedded, would have to kind of define, would have to kind of translate their ideas into a form that they could pass on to someone who who would be an expert in embedded systems, right? Exactly um, so right. So that, that would be a challenge. Um, so that, that would be kind of a, a, a hurdle that LabVIEW can overcome because, I mean, the person is designing the algorithm in LabVIEW, it's visual, right? Um, and then they can transfer that to the FPGA. 
That's exactly right. And without having to have the knowledge of VHDL, which would typically require an expert in embedded systems. So what we try to do is enable a domain expert, someone who's working on communications or controls or robotics or mechatronics, to go as far down that deployment and uh, early prototyping curve without having to have the expertise of an embedded systems engineer on their team. Now, you've been uh, exposed to embedded systems from your time in uh, schooling. Uh, where did you go to school? So I began at uh, uh, actually an area of uh, computer science at a community college, Santa Monica College in Southern California, and uh, quickly showed a lot of interest in embedded systems there and, and moved more into the electrical engineering area and continued to do my uh, bachelor's in electrical engineering and computer science at the University of California at Berkeley. And in fact, continued on to complete a master's in electrical engineering and computer science at Berkeley. And it was in fact uh, there that I was first introduced to the area of embedded systems. And I fell in love with it because it required such a broad knowledge and a little bit of of multidisciplinary design. And, and I also had the opportunity to learn LabVIEW both from signals and systems courses, as well as the embedded systems course that's taught to undergraduates there. So that was your first exposure to LabVIEW? Yes, that's right. And it seems like you you took it and started um, doing some interesting things with it, uh, especially hacking. Well, I mean, hacking is kind of an overloaded term, I suppose. <laughs> I, I should say that. Whatever skills I have, I, I try to use them for good. So that's probably the first uh, first point I'd make about that. But yeah, actually, it was you know my first exposure to LabVIEW was interesting because I had spent about five years as a C++ developer and then spent another five years in the IT community. So I looked at, uh, at computers and architecture and programming languages in a very different way. And when it came to LabVIEW, it's a very different paradigm. And I had to let go of some of those constraints that I had learned with the textual and sequential programming languages like keeping track of pointers and memory and how do I organize parallelism when the language itself is inherently sequential. And and so those were interesting experiences for me. And so once I I came to understand the, the power of the abstraction of LabVIEW, then I found that I could very easily connect things like USB web cameras to make robots that played the board game Go against you or that we could interface with the Nintendo Wiimote and get its data very readily up on the screen and use that to drive around robots. And so projects like that became readily accessible. And I saw how quickly I was able to interface with hardware. And I knew how long that would have taken me to do in C or C++, even if open source libraries existed for that. The ability to connect multiple hardware devices uh, would have been a real challenge. And so the hacking projects that I've worked on have really been along those lines where I wanted to connect one or more hardware targets very, very quickly. And LiveEat seemed to do a, a very good job of that. And um, as a result of that, uh, you've created a website. I'm not sure if you're the creator of it. Maybe you can give us a little bit of history of that. But on this website, there's uh, several projects that you can uh, uh, immediately dive into with LabVIEW and, and start you know, doing your own hacking, I guess. Or you basically explain how, thing, how, how to do the, the hacking. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I encourage you to, to check out labviewhacker.com. Um, when you write it into the URL field of your browser, you may realize that, that the LabVIEW hacker is perhaps not the uh, uh, best domain name we could have chosen in retrospect. That was perhaps a poor choice. Um, so what really happened was I have the opportunity of working with a number of different students, professors, and universities across the country uh, very closely with our academic team. Uh, that has a, a very engaged 
relationship with so many different universities and programs. And what we saw was that students were working on very cool projects with inexpensive commercial off-the-shelf products. And while, of course, at National Instruments, as a leader in test and measurement, we work with some of the most sophisticated test and measurement devices and some of the world's most expensive equipment, such as the CERN Large Hadron Collider. But in academic, students want to have experience with that same level of tool and that same level of design, but they obviously don't have access to particle accelerators. And so by just taking these off-the-shelf products and using them in their projects, they were able to get a lot of that same design experience. And what we did was basically work with students. So the website was set up by students, both at the University of California at Berkeley, UCLA, I believe the University of Washington and others. And it was students who were um, packaging their software together using the JKI VI package manager, which had turned out to be a remarkable way to exchange code and to make it very easy for other students to uh, build on those projects. And basically students just added their content to the website. They created a little document they shared with each other on how to add the content, they added some tutorials, and then they packaged up their VIs into the VI package manager. And so that's really the genesis of it. Every package you see there was actually written by either an intern or uh, an intern with an I or an intern at one of our branch offices or a student. Or on occasion, we've had some of our applications engineers who work in a, a group called the Consumer Products Interface Group who just mainly on their own time in their weekends and evenings do these fun hacks at home using LabVIEW and like to be able to post that content online. So it's really kind of a mixing and matching of small projects. And the only requirement that we've really we've really put down is uh, make sure that students can recreate it and make sure that it's relatively easy to use and you've described how it is that you made the interface. So am I to understand correct, you have people at NI that, that hack consumer products? And again, by hacking, I would I should instead say <laughs> I should instead say that we you know it's it's more connecting to the maker movement. We find a lot of people who yeah. go home and they take uh, uh, Arduinos and connect into solenoids and magnet sensors and create home automation security systems. Or they uh, a friend of mine just did a very fun project of building a camera that follows along. Uh, uh, his kid is as, as they run through their rooms and he gets this, you know, camera image live of what his kid is seeing. And it's really fun to watch. And, you know, we just see fun hacks like that. In fact, we have an internal conference where a lot of our R&D developers get to show off hacking projects they do on their own. And, and it's really just about how we can use LabVIEW to connect to different hardware devices and how to do so quickly and do some kind of a cool demo or project out of it. Yeah, I think I think it's awesome. Um, going through some of the content here, I noticed there's uh, one. Um, you guys also did a presentation at NI Week this year on some of this stuff, right? Yes, that's right. In fact, I am very pleased to announce that for the second year in a row, it is the most attended session of NI Week. Uh, and so, with the exception of the academic keynote, which uh, they do provide a free lunch. Uh, is in fact the most attended uh, event outside of the keynotes at NI Week. And uh, can you talk about some of the stuff you presented there? I think one of them was the AR drone. Yes, uh, and I'm still expecting a phone call at some point from our human resources uh, asking me why I thought it was a good idea to fly a quad rotor helicopter indoors. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and over the audience. Uh, um, but luckily, we we did do some testing to make sure it was relatively safe and we did have a a line of uh, of our applications engineers at the front of the room who were more than willing to uh, take the hit in front of the uh, in front of the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
No, it's really a, it's a fun platform. The AR drone is, a, again, a commercial off-the-shelf quadrotor helicopter. It's got a very elegant interface. In fact, the most common use, use case is to fly it with your iPhone. So your iPhone sends TCP IP communication. And you actually connect to the AR drone as it broadcasts a Wi-Fi hotspot, and then you get a nice app on your iPhone to control it. Of course, I think it's more interesting if you start to introduce your own logic and use your own programming to control it. So what if I could have it flying autonomously or performing a task, uh, uh, you know, give it waypoints and do things that would go beyond the capability, one of the processing capabilities of the iPhone, and two, beyond what the interface that AR Drone provided did. And so we put together an interface in LabVIEW. It just uses the TCP IP uh, functionality to get information like the latest pictures from the video camera. You can actually get live video. Uh, you can give it uh, a sequence of commands. You can get all of the data back from the accelerometers and the flight dynamics. And it's a very elegant interface. In fact, if you go to the uh, labviewhacker.com website, you can just see a link to the AR drone, how we created the package for it, and download it, install it, and you should be able to get up and running very quickly with, uh, with the AR drone. And the fun part of that demo was that we flew the, the drone over the audience and took a photograph of the audience and tweeted it live uh, for everyone to see uh, what the quad rotor saw. And it was a really fun way of connecting that demo. Yeah, I saw that. That was pretty neat. Uh, what what other uh, demos did you show at that NI week? Well, this year, uh, we started off with a Twitter demo, which was a really fun and elegant uh, interface that a team of our application engineers put together. Uh, and it's just a way for your robot or your computer devices to send a tweet. And of course, as you know, from a as an architect yourself and one of our LabVIEW champions, it's sometimes important to have web interfaces or external interfaces to an application that's running, especially if it's autonomous or running overnight, etc. And so now you've got the ability to say, well, if there was an error, send a tweet. And I could get that on my phone or I could get that on my laptop or anything that has access to Twitter. And it's also fun to, in this case, as we did, take a photograph of an audience and tweet it live and show fun things, which is what I hope students would do with this package. And we began with the Twitter package, and we had students and interns at the front of the room who connected a series of Arduinos to laptop computer just to get some I.O. points. So they ran those to some relays to turn on and off lights, uh, big flashing lights and Christmas tree lights. And they encouraged the audience to tweet and give a reference to pound LabVIEW hacker. And as they did so, they could say, turn left light on or turn the right light on or turn on and make the party start when the police lights would turn on. And in the front of the room, audience members were actually tweeting this and the lights were turning on and off. In fact, we even had people from NI Russia who were watching actually send a tweet to change the lights from Russia. It was a really fun, fun demo to show. Uh, we then moved on to, uh, I believe, the EZ430 Kronos. This is actually a package that I wrote uh, and was a fun, simple watch that's put together by Texas Instruments based on their MSP430 microcontroller. It's a reprogrammable watch that has a number of sensors like a barometric pressure sensor and uh, an altimeter that they make out of that. They have temperature sensors, a three-axis accelerometer. You can even plug a heart rate monitor into it. And it has a very simple RF communication to a USB dongle that plugs into a laptop. And your laptop sees it as a as a serial device and doesn't even necessarily see it as wireless. So it's very easy to use NIVISA to communicate to and from the watch. And we showed a, uh, a fun example of a theremin. 
because you have that accelerometer in your watch, it's very easy to create music from it. So by raising my hand up or down, I could change the volume. And by twisting my wrist left or right, as if I were twisting a virtual knob in the air, I could change the pitch. And leveraging some work of Baron Stone, who did a similar project with an optical theremin on my deck, I took his, his VI that uh, auto-tuned and actually had the watch playing audio over my laptop computer and auto-tuning to the pentatonic scale. That's hilarious. We showed uh, the Microsoft Xbox Connect. It's one that we had shown last year, but it was tied to an older version of Microsoft's SDK and later broke when Microsoft uh, took that SDK version offline and moved on to a much later version. So we updated that and showed a simple demo of getting the video and depth map from the Microsoft Xbox Connect onto LabVIEW and something, again, you could use for an autonomous application or uh, to show vision-guided motion or anything you could do with our, our vision and uh, iMac libraries. We also showed the NeuroSky Mindshark. If you've seen this, this is a fun one. It's actually an EEG device that can read brain waves. And it's very inexpensive. I believe it is $99 the last time that I looked. And it lets you do cool things like, in this case, steering a shark blimp by blinking. So we had a simple IR interface to a shark blimp that has a remote control. But in this case, we connected it through an IR transmitter going USB to LabVIEW and then use LabVIEW to read in the data from the NeuroSky Mindshark EEG. And uh, the person who demoed this actually, by blinking a special way, could steer this shark blimp left and right over the audience. It was a, a very fun demo to show. And I think it's interesting to think about these augmented reality applications that can, that can come out of that. So a lot of this stuff, uh, basically, you know, obviously it promotes LabVIEW. It gets people involved more with LabVIEW. A lot of companies look at the bottom line, right? And and a lot of these things are not very bottom line driven. But how, did the, how does this, you know, hacking these uh, consumer devices and connecting LabVIEW to them, what value does this have? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I also get asked that internally as well. <laughs> the first and foremost thing I would say is that the value is that it's just fun to work on this stuff. We do it because we just like to work on this stuff. We're all hackers on our own time. We like to put these projects together and it's really exciting to see someone else build an even cooler project based off of work that we did. I mean, we're really just do it out of fun. The, the people who are at NI that work on this are doing it in their either 10% time or they're doing it at home or on the weekend. So it's just something we like to do for fun because we're hackers in nature, we're engineers and, and we like to tinker. Um, as far as connecting it to a larger NI mission, uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say we haven't even really made such an attempt. I think that it's an interesting question to look at what is the intersection of the hacker and maker space when you see students and hobbyists and hackers who uh, are doing fun projects in the garage and, and kicking off businesses out of them and seeing, well, can we make them successful with a tool like LabVIEW? And I'm confident that we can, not only because of the success of the LabVIEW Hacker website and our success with so many different universities, but also because of uh, the versatility of the paradigm of graphical design. When you hear our CEO, Dr. James Trichard, speak, he often references in the same slide the Lego Mindstorms for which the graphical programming environment is in fact the simplified version of LabVIEW, and he'll put that side by side with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN and say 
if you have the right abstraction, it works all the way from kindergarten to rocket science. It's somewhere in between there is that hacker and hobbyist space. And, and we're just interested in exploring what that is and, and finding out, is it people who have access to our tools that use them at large test facilities that use them for embedded systems design and for controls, robotics, and mechatronics? Are they interested in, in using LabVIEW on their home projects? Or is it something more organic? Is it something where hackers and hobbyists are interested in a platform that enables them to quickly innovate and get cool things running, even if it's not something that is selling NI hardware? And I'm just interested in exploring that space and, and really don't know the answer to that yet. So... Um... I mentioned to you offline that I, I stumbled across a video you did about a year ago or so uh, for Science in the Pub. And Science in the Pub, I guess it's uh, it's an event that happens in Austin in, in, a, in a pub somewhere. And you were invited to do a presentation on that. It wasn't very technical, but I, I really liked it because it had it was explaining you know how computers fit into sort of our environment and how they're there to protect us and you know serve us. And one thing I liked that you said at the end that. So computers are there to accelerate our own humanity. Um, mm. And that was kind of sort of the punchline at the end. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, Science in the Pub is a great event, and it's organized by student groups at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, I actually came across it when uh, Waterloo Labs was invited to present on some of the work that they've done, playing Mario Kart by uh, tracking the movement of their eye. And, of course, this was the team that did the remote controlled car via iPhone that, that got a great deal of publicity. And so they were invited to present at Science at the Pub, and, and that's how I came into contact with them and was later invited to give a discussion of, uh, well, how imperfect computers are in a sense. Um, and the title of the, of the uh, presentation was, if I remember correctly, uh, Computing Life and Death, Ubiquitous Computing and How Skydivers Evade Darwinism. And it was certainly a, a intended to be a very controversial title. In fact, I got a an email from someone who said, "Isn't ubiquitous computing just a buzzword?" And I, I acknowledged that at the beginning of the talk, and I said, "Whoever called me out on that, you're exactly right." <laughs> but I, I do think that we do see computers everywhere, and and how that has affected our lives when they go into safety critical systems. When you think about how computers have impacted healthcare, how computers have impacted our ability to shrink the size of the world and, and give us access to safe air transport, car transport. I mean, these, these are devices that are, that are saving lives. And it's an interesting thing to consider with, with respect to, to Darwinism as to you know, how, how computers are basically extending lifespans and giving us a better quality of life. And I do think that we see a great deal of fear, especially in the media, about how software fails and how things go wrong when software isn't correctly designed. And, and that's certainly true, but I also think it's remarkable how well software has worked. The stability of an airplane is a remarkably challenging thing to do. I mean, consider this, for example, on an airplane, a very sophisticated airplane, a jet airplane, commercial airliner, they have to have a very complex system of pumps and, and sensors and measuring devices to balance where the fuel is in the wings to help wing balance and load balance the airplane. This is something that is always moving and always dynamic depending on how the plane is moving and depending on where the fuel is. That's something that a pilot could never exactly get right and, and, and couldn't spend all of his or her attention on, but it's something that software can enable. You think about anti-lock brakes, which 
can reduce braking distance and sometimes up to 20 to 25 percent or stability control which could reduce up to 6,000 accidents every year if it were standardized in every car these are computational systems that that save lives on a regular basis a lot of the work we've done in real time optical to coherence tomography is something that allows doctors to have a completely new level of understanding of what's going on in the 3D way of a person's brain and of a person's of a person's body. I mean, these are incredible advancements that have accelerated our own humanity in many ways. I think that these are advancements that people can be proud of and that generally have a very strong social benefit. And, and the, the talk was really to talk about what are some of those things and when have they failed and when have they been done right and what are the right design methodologies to continue to develop systems like this with increasing complexity that have this greater social impact. Yeah, and the one thing you you said was that um, you know the media you know always focuses on the negative, right? Because that's you know sensational, right? It's like, well, computer failed, or there was a bug that caused the death, um, but it doesn't focus on the the other side of it, which well, yeah, but we've saved thousands of lives, right? So there's there's the that's um, I like that contrast that you mentioned on, on the, the presentation. And, you know, it's, it's not just software that is subject to that. There are instances where seatbelts uh, can, can have negative effects, and there are instances where airbags have negative effects. And, and in some sense, it's a, perhaps a bit cold to use such a utilitarian calculus and say, well, it's done you know, less harm and more good. But uh, still, I think overall, we're uh, confident that seatbelts and airbags were good inventions, and we're continually improving them. And, and uh, software is just one of those pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, I think continually improving and always fine-tuning and making things better is our goal, right, moving forward. It is, but it, 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 can, it has to be more than just tuning, especially with safety-critical systems. The design space is so sophisticated. It's so complicated. A little bit about the theory of computability or if you've ever heard of complexity theory, it's understanding how hard these software pro pro projects are to, to predict their behavior. And I can give you some anecdotal evidence of this. If there were a tool that could automatically catch bugs in software, don't you think we'd be using that by now? I mean, wouldn't that be either a tremendous source of revenue for the person who developed that? And wouldn't this be something that could save lives and cause so many problems from ever occurring if we could automatically catch bugs in software? And it turns out that we have theory from the 1930s from mathematicians and logicians such as Church and Myhill and Turing that gives us uh, uh, a lot of understanding that we could actually never have software that's perfect. It's impossible to, to evaluate every possible set of inputs and outputs for even the most reasonably simple of software systems. And so trial and error is is good in the hacking environment, and that's an interesting contrast to, to these safety-critical systems, is that hacking, it's okay if it doesn't work. Sometimes it's a learning experience, but the learning experience in the safety-critical systems comes at too great a cost. And there has to be more emphasis on design methodologies that produce software that is higher confident, that you have a higher level of confidence that is going to work correctly, that is going to be bug-free, that can be run for millions of hours in some instances without any user intervention, and still control important devices like brakes or the stability of an airplane. And so that's one of the things that that is well-suited with a graphical design environment that has a, a good model for parallelism, where it doesn't have subjects to, uh, to the types of conditions like race conditions and deadlock you would get with a traditional threaded programming language, or being able to think about applications that can run on an FPGA with very predictable timing. And these are the kinds of things that models of computation and graphical design environments 
uh, can really have a contribution to that discussion. Yeah. And also, you know, using proven design patterns, correct? Yes. And design patterns are an important thing, if only because they've been tested more than others. Um, and then there are other ways that we consider uh, looking at design. So if I have something that's really dominated by what we would say control flow, I make a lot of decisions. If this, then this. If this, then this. If I have a state-based approach. So certainly state machines are a very common architecture, perhaps the most common architecture in LabVIEW. And we have a tool, the uh, LabVIEW state chart module, that is a completely state-based environment that follows uh, UML standards and other specifications that are widely adopted for the use in avionics. And so there, the mantra is to live in an environment where I can only express state-based kinds of decisions, and then within there, connect it to I.O. and logic within the traditional LabVIEW diagram. So, Jeff, where do you, where do you see embedded going in the future? Where, I mean, obviously more ubiquitous. <laughs> sure. Um, but, you know, what are the challenges moving forward that, that, we're, that still need to be um, sort of solved or what are the new areas of, of development? Well, you know, there's a, there's a real leader in this area that I look up to and, and uh, has this person has done a great deal of work in this area. And that's uh, Dr. Helen Gill and also Dr. Ted Baker at the National Science Foundation who are in charge of the Cyber Physical Systems Initiative. They do, are the program directors in that area and they really came up with that term and, and I'll describe it simply, but there's a great definition of what a cyber physical system is and a proposal to the, I believe, 2010 presidential budget for NSF. But basically, a cyber physical system is something where you have embedded computing that's tightly integrated to a physical process. But it's often involved in a safety critical system or it's often widely distributed. It could be thousands of nodes that communicate wirelessly for smart grid applications or for health monitoring or for structural health monitoring of bridges. They are very complex systems, both from a control theory standpoint. How do I control the behavior of such a complicated network of devices? How do I ensure its security? How do I design for such a complex system? And these are really interesting design problems. And the reason that NSF has shown such leadership here is, is they believe this is the future of where these systems are going. And, and I tend to agree. I think that embedded systems are less and less going to be these standalone embedded systems that live inside of a washing machine or your watch. And more, they're going to be connected devices. You're going to start to see uh, cars that are cooperatively avoiding accidents or that are following each other set according to a set of rules and adjusting their their speeds. You're going to see networks of things that evolve in very sophisticated ways for doing things like controlling HVAC systems and the temperature and, and heating and cooling of, of large offices in ways that is more energy efficient. Uh, industrial processes are very akin to this. I think the more we've seen the ubiquitous use of cell phones and how cell phones now have an entire ecosystem around them that is so much beyond the original definition of success for a cell phone, which was to give you a signal and audio, where now a cell phone is something that connects us in many different ways to many different devices. And that's, that's a cell phone that just can sense things about the world and has connectivity to other devices. But now we're starting to see these devices affect other things. We're starting to see them connect to actuators. We're starting to see them control the world in new ways. And there are a lot of design problems that come with that. I think that is the future of embedded systems. You're going to start to see more distributed applications where they not only read and sense the real world, but actuate and affect it. And they do it in a, uh, they do it in a closed loop kind of way. 
Well, Jeff, uh, it's been great talking to you. Um, I, I appreciate your time and thank you for uh, joining us on the, on the podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been my, been my privilege. I also encourage everyone to go visit laviewhacker.com and start, uh, start hacking or start, start uh, not hacking, but using LabVIEW to communicate and control various consumer devices. How about that? <laughs> Sounds great to me. Okay. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Thank you, Michael. And thank you all for listening to this episode of the VI Shots podcast. Make sure to visit the show notes page on vishots.com to find links to the content mentioned in this episode. You can also leave a comment over there with any questions, or you can send us email to feedback at vishots.com. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.